Well, let us pray together. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage today from Mark 3 finds Jesus smack dab in the middle of another controversy. Chapters 2 and 3 of Mark's Gospel are account after account of Jesus facing opposition, mainly from the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and Pharisees. And each of these accounts reveals a little bit more about who Jesus is. We've seen that Jesus is himself the gospel. He is the compassionate king and the center of our religious life. And Mark has laid this groundwork, this foundation, to help us see what our passage points to today. And that's that Jesus is too important for us to keep at arm's length. We're going to see that in four ways this morning. First, by looking at the depth of our need. Then the power of the Savior, the opposition his work faces, and the gift that he gives. Let's first get a handle on the depth of our need. Jesus faces an attack from the scribes, which we'll talk more about in a minute. And the response he gives is a teaching on how Satan cannot stand against Satan. That any kingdom fighting against itself will eventually fall. And then he says this in verse 27. But no, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. This verse helps to reveal the depth of our need. How so? Well, Jesus is talking about the nature of evil and the fight against Satan. And in his parable, Satan is the strong man. And his house is what we could call his kingdom, what he has control over. And so to deal with evil, the strong man needs to be bound so that what is in his kingdom can be brought out of it. What does this have to do with people? Well, because of the sinfulness of mankind and the effect that it has, people are squarely in the strong man's house. We are that which needs to be plundered from the kingdom of evil. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's a pretty grim picture, isn't it? But it's one we must honestly contend with because it's why sin is so terrible. It keeps us following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And our constant choice of sin over God keeps us locked 
in that kingdom. We are bound and tied with no escape. And truthfully, we don't want to escape. The truly evil part of sin is that we love it. We constantly pick sin over God because it feels good. It feeds the desires of our hearts and minds, and, and the world encourages us to feed those desires. Just the other day, I overheard a neighbor talking about how you just need to follow what's in your heart. Just go after what it is, whatever it is you love, right? And it sounds, it sounds great, but Jeremiah 37 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Our hearts are broken, they are fallen, and that means that we will choose sin over good, we will choose evil over God, and left to our own devices, we will keep doing so. There would be no way out of the kingdom of Satan, and we wouldn't even want it if there was. That is the seriousness of the problem that we face. That is why we need the power of a Savior. See, Jesus, knowing he is being attacked, tells people to look at what he's done. That's what he means when he talks about Satan not being able to stand against Satan. If, if Jesus was evil, he wouldn't be able to do this much good. One or two things, sure, but over and over and over again, Jesus performs acts that show that he is good and perfect and loving. The healings, the preaching, the call to repentance and to return to the Father, all of it shows us who he is. He is the one who is powerful enough to enter the strong man's house and bind him and to take what is firmly in the strong man's house and bring it into God's. Use Paul's words again, this time from Colossians chapter 1. In Jesus, God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. The Father knows the seriousness of the problem we face, and so he sent the Son, Jesus, to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And that transfer comes through this amazing promise of Jesus in verse 28, he says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. We can't just gloss over that. We need to, to sit with the truth of this promise. In Jesus, all sins are forgiven. That is how he frees us. Knowing that we will never choose God on our own, Jesus comes for us. And he says, Repent. I will give you forgiveness. I'll forgive you your sins. That is the power he has. Yes, he can heal and he can drive out demons, but far more important than any of that is the forgiveness that he gives us. That he can take our sin-infested heart, our, our love of sin, and replace it with a heart that loves him above all and that seeks him first. The depth of our problem is that we are lost and held captive to sin, but the power 
of our Savior is to deliver us from evil, to live in the light of Christ. Now, we might uh, want the story to, to end there. That's some awfully good news. But we have to be honest about something. The proclamation that Jesus is the powerful Savior that we all need will always face opposition. We see this opposition in our passage in three different ways. The first is rather obvious, the scribes. The scribes, seeing that Jesus can attract a crowd, and even now has close disciples, they move against him. But they can't deny his power. They can't deny the miracles that he is doing, and so they attribute them to evil, saying that he casts out demons by the prince of evil. They call the good works of Christ evil. And that sort of accusation has is, is, is not gone away. actually came home to me earlier this week. I was watching a documentary where people can, professing to be Christians argued that if God sent Jesus to the cross to bear the wrath of the Father and pay the penalty for sin, then God is evil. That it was divine child abuse. What loving God would put his son to death. And it's, it's just utter nonsense. Christ freely chose to go to the cross, following the will of the Father in an act of unmeasurable grace and love. The single greatest act of love and grace and mercy in human history was being called evil. These sorts of attacks have not and will not go away. The other place that we see opposition coming from might be a little more surprising for us. Sometimes attacks come from not those we see as obvious opponents to the gospel, but from those closest to us. Verse 21 tells us that Jesus' family came to seize him, believing that he was out of his mind. They see that Jesus has developed a following, and they're like, this has gone way too far. You're losing it, Jesus. You need to stop what you're doing. It's the same reason why at the end of our passage, Jesus' mother and brothers come, and they, they try to keep him from what he's doing. And why would they do that? Because they don't get who he is. They don't get the seriousness of the problem and that the solution is only found in Jesus. Only he can provide it. To them, he is, he's just Jesus. He's, he's the boy they grew up with, not the Messiah. The truth is, opposition, even today, can come from those who are closest to us. Rifts and divisions in families over the question of who Jesus is didn't stop with this account. No, many people, including myself, who face Distance in familial relationships because some are believers and some are not. Personally know people who have lived through the challenge of family members trying to stop them from following Jesus and following where he's called them. And divisions and rifts were created and people were hurt. Often we want to believe that Family and friends will always support us in, in our decisions, but many of us know that simply is not the case when it comes to following Jesus. 
And it's because so long as one remains in the kingdom of darkness, they will oppose the kingdom of light. It may not be through open hostility. It might be through saying things like, well, is Jesus really that important? What do you even get out of religion? I mean, you're a good person. You're, you're nice and you have a good life. Does, do you really need Jesus? So long as one remains in the kingdom of darkness, the darkness blinds them to their need, and so Jesus doesn't seem that important. And Jesus came to deliver us from evil, to give us the heart change that we need, and so Christians will face opposition from those who have not submitted to Christ. Sad as it may be, that often includes those closest to us. One last place of opposition that might surprise us. Ourself. This chapter includes a passage of scripture that I have to admit terrified me for a very long time. And I know others that have felt the same way. Jesus says that all sins will be forgiven. Except one. Verse 29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For much of my young Christian life, I was afraid that I had committed that sin without knowing it, that, that I was done before I even started. Thankfully, Mark includes verse 30 to help explain what the sin against the Holy Spirit is. Jesus said this, for they, meaning the scribes, were saying he has an unclean spirit. In other words, this unforgivable sin is calling what is good evil. It's calling the acts of God evil. And the reason it is unforgivable is that if we think what is good is evil, we will never come to the one who forgives us. If we think that Jesus is doing evil, then why would we ever ask for his forgiveness? After all, we would say that he's evil, and what's evil has no power to forgive. It would never want to. And so we cut ourselves off from the one who forgives and remain unforgiving. Now, the reason I bring this up in the, in the context of the opposition we face is not because I think that there's a whole bunch of people at St. Aidan's who have committed this sin. In fact, many scholars have helpfully pointed out that if we are afraid that we've committed this sin, it's a very strong indicator that we have not done so. Because if we had, we wouldn't care. Now, the reason I bring this up is because of this whole question of fear. The fear we face about coming to Jesus is, is something that can keep us from him. We think, gosh, there's a sin that Jesus won't forgive. Maybe I committed it. Maybe I've been so sinful that there's no hope for me, that he won't forgive me, that I'm not good enough to be forgiven, that I'm too sinful even for Jesus. That's heartbreaking. And it's because we read verse 29 and draw all kinds of bad conclusions rather than reading the verse in context. We forget the amazing promise of verse 28, that Jesus will forgive all our sins if we repent and come to him. Bishop Ryle points out, these are sweet and precious words. The sins of youth and age, 
the sins of head and hand and tongue and imagination, the, the sins against God's commandments, the sins of persecutors like Saul, the sins of idolaters like Manasseh, the sins of the open enemies of Christ, the blood of Christ cleanses all away. The righteousness of Christ can cover all. Amazingly good news. Those are the three forms of opposition that we see in this passage and that we can face as Christians. One of these attacks says God is a moral monster, that he's not good. The other says, you don't need to follow him. The problem's not that serious. The other says, my problem is too serious even for him to deal with. How do we avoid succumbing to these? Because the truth is, it's really tempting. It's really tempting not to leave when family tells you that you're picking Jesus over them. And that you're causing a fight in the family. It's hard sometimes to answer the challenge of those who say Jesus is not the answer. In fact, he's the problem. It's really hard to see actually that Jesus promised to forgive sins and that includes my sins as well. But what should be a comfort to us here is that Jesus faced the same opposition that we so often do. Now, granted, he didn't face the problem uh, of worrying that he couldn't be forgiven because he never sinned. He, he never had anything to be forgiven of. But he did face the problem of opposition of those who believed him to be evil. And he personally faced the challenge of a divided home. What this tells us is that we have a Savior who knows what it is to be tempted and tried and challenged just like we are. He's not a God who remains far off and ignorant of the challenges we face, but one who knows them intimately, knows us intimately. And so the way that we deal with these challenges is all about him. We look to the gift that Jesus offers. And that gift, put simply, is Jesus himself. Some of us probably wanted to hear that the gift that Jesus offers is, is possessions and wealth or a life and society free of pain and, and suffering. After all, that would show those opponents, look at how blessed my life is because Jesus gave me this amazing vacation. The true gift is Jesus himself. John tells us that this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what Jesus came to do. To show us the Father, and in seeing him and his Son, we might find eternal relationship with them. The gift Jesus offers is himself. At the end of our passage, Jesus' biological family comes to call him home. They come to call him home while he is surrounded by a crowd. And we see in this that there are two types of people. Those who will be outside of the house, calling Jesus only so that they can bind him and keep him from his work. And those inside the house, sitting at Jesus' feet, spending time in relationship with him, learning 
from him, being in his presence. That is what Jesus offers us. That is the gift he gives. And in offering it to us, he does something that is greater than any material blessing in the world. He makes us his family. Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Well, to do the will of God, we have to first believe in him, don't we? We have to submit to the call of Christ and come to him in repentance. In doing so, we find the gift of relationship with him and we are made a part of the family of God. Today's Pentecost Sunday, the day that has often been, been called the birthday of the church. When the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples and people heard the proclamation of the good news of the proclamation of Jesus in their own language. And many came to faith. People of different nations, different languages, different races, men and women, all of them were knit together into the household, the family of God. What a comfort this should be for us. That Christ invites us to be a part of a family bigger and greater than we could imagine. A family filled with people from all kinds of places and people groups united by faith in Christ at peace together with our God and with one another. That sounds like some good news we could use right about now. Peace among people sounds incredible. And it comes through peace with our God. It comes through the filling of the Holy Spirit. Him being that down payment that we are Jesus's, that we are part of his family. But look, being a part of the family of God, it's not just a matter of proximity. Being the biological brother or mother of Jesus didn't do that much for them. It's not good enough just to brush up against some Christians now and then or, or come to church just to learn some morals, to learn how to be good people. Now, we got to get real about Jesus. We have to answer for ourselves what we believe about Jesus. He's too important to ignore. We need to say whether we think he is the monster that the scribes say he is, or the crazy man that his family says, or the Savior and Lord that he says he is. Folks, we face a problem that is too big for us to solve beyond our ability. We are alienated from the Father by our sin and our love of sin. But thanks be to God, Jesus is the powerful Savior who delivers us from sin and death and gives us life and relationship with him as a part of his family. Will we sit at the feet of our Savior? Or will we allow the pull of opposition to keep us from him? Will we be outside trying to argue against Jesus, or will we find in him the binder of the strong man, the powerful Savior? Will we enter the house of Jesus, the kingdom of God, and be a part of his family, a family of all nations, tongues, tribes, and people? Will we be a part of his family for all eternity?
is too important to ignore, even for a moment longer. Jesus calls to us, offering us forgiveness of sin and a place in his family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did send Jesus for us, that in him we can be made a part of his family. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to repent of our sin, that we would confess our need for Jesus and find in him the powerful Savior that we need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.